From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. Khalil Bendib is away. For the past 30 years, the Middle East Children's Alliance, or Mecca, has been working for the rights of children in the Middle East, sending humanitarian aid, supporting projects for children, and educating North Americans and international communities about the effects of U.S. foreign policy on the children of the region. This week, we speak to Middle East Children's Alliance founder Barbara Lubin and Mecca's program manager for cross-cultural programs, Ziad Abbas, about the organization's humanitarian work in Palestine. Also this week, we bring back a conversation we had with Palestinian visual artist Khaled Jarrar about his award-winning documentary film, Infiltrators. All this coming up on this week's Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Stay with us. For the past 30 years, the Middle East Children's Alliance, Mecca, has been working for the rights of children in the Middle East by sending humanitarian aid supporting projects for children and educating North Americans and international communities about the effects of U.S. foreign policy on children in the region. On June 4th, Mecca will celebrate its 30th anniversary as the local community pays tribute to its beloved founder, Barbara Lubin. Khalil Bendib spoke with Barbara Lubin and Mecca's program manager for cross-cultural programs, Ziad Abbas, about the history of Mecca, its mission, and its accomplishments. Mecca is 30 years old. Your list of founding advisors is a who's who of well-known activists, uh, such as Noam Chomsky, the late Casey Kasem, Alice Walker, etc., etc. Tell us how Mecca was born 30 years ago. Well, I went um, on a delegation a group of young Palestinians and Lebanese students from San Francisco State came to see me. I had been on the school board. I had uh, been very involved in Berkeley politics. I helped write the uh, first and only commercial rent control law in the United States. And so I was out there. And these guys came to see me and they said, Barbara, you go to El Salvador, you go to Nicaragua, you go to Cuba, but you never say anything about Palestine. And I said, oh, well, you know, I'm Jewish. And they said, what does that have to do with it? And I thought it had everything to do with it. And uh, those young guys kept coming back to see me and educating me and bringing me books to read about Palestine. And uh, finally, they said, maybe you should go there yourself and see it, Barbara. Then you'll understand. So I organized a small delegation. Some of us were local elected officials from around the country. And we were from all over. Three of us were from here, from Berkeley. Father Bill O'Donnell and Maudel Shurek and myself and um, people from outside of here. And a wonderful woman named Jean Butterfield was our leader. And we went and spent two weeks in the West Bank and in Gaza. And it was the two weeks that changed my life. Everything changed. 
uh, everything I had been told about from my mother and father and rabbi and everybody else was not true. And it was shocking to me to see that, to hear all of this. I couldn't believe it. But when I came home, we had a press conference at the San Francisco Press Club, and Howard Levine was there covering it for the examiner. He was the East Bay stringer for the San Francisco examiner. And um, we went out to lunch afterwards, and he said, well, what are you going to do now? You couldn't get reelected to the school board. We were the school board that closed five schools here in Berkeley, and we were not loved. And so I said, I feel like I have to do something about Palestine, about the children there. And what was his attitude towards Palestine? Well, he he was his family's Jewish, but they weren't Zionists. My family were very right wing Zionists. I mean, everything in our lives was is it good for Israel? Mm. In fact, if we were at the dinner table, someone would say, pass the butter, and then somebody else would say, is it good for Israel? <laughs> I, everything was about Israel, but he didn't grow up with any of that, so he didn't really know. Where did this obsession for Israel come from? Is that the... I, you know, my mother was um, president in Philadelphia of an organization called ORT which was organization and rehabilitation through training. And they raised a lot of money, and they sent it or took it to Israel to uh, train Israeli women. And we went to the synagogue and on the high holy days and sometimes on Friday nights. So it was just ingrained in me, and all everybody around me was Jewish, and we all, I am old enough, I hate to say this, but I remember the day of the vote, the UN vote, to make Israel what it is today, and a country. You were a, a, they a think. small child back then. I was just a little girl, but we had one of the only television sets in our neighborhood, so everybody in the neighborhood came to see it. And everybody, we were dancing in the streets. We were so happy that the people who had suffered so horribly during the Holocaust, that they had a home. Mm -hmm. And that's it all comes from the Holocaust, from those days. Mm -hmm. I'm 77, so I do remember it. Ziyad, how did you become involved with Mecca? Actually, I, me personally, I am a Palestinian refugee. I was born and grew up in the Hesha refugee camp in Bethlehem. But my family originally from two villages. My dad from Zakaria village. It's near Jerusalem. And what Barbara speaking about when she was celebrating in Philadelphia in the street, because Israel now yeah. become a home for the Jewish. My family uprooted in that moment from my father village, Zakaria, my mom from Jrash village near Jerusalem too. I met Barbara in 1989. She came in the, to the camp. I was working as a journalist in that period and she came with a delegation and we met in Dehesh and this is the first time we met, I remember. Yes. And uh, during that period, I was shocked we are not used to see many Jewish people. They are like speaking in a way or another 
more openly about the Palestinian rights. And since that period, I, I met her. She came back again. I was working in other organization called Alternative Information Center. And I remember you came with other delegation too in early 90s, 93 maybe. And we met again. And later on, we started organization in the Hesha refugee camp. It's called Ebda, the dancing group, which we came to the United States. And since the beginning, when we, it was the first organization in any refugee camp in Palestine or Syria or Jordan, in Gaza Strip, where girls and boys can be together. So we started our focus in that period is to try to focus on the refugees issue because Oslo agreement in 93, we felt we are left out from this agreement and we need to keep this spirit in the camp thinking about our rights as uh, refugees. So we started this initiative called Ibda, it means creativity. And from that we were in touch with Mecca and this is how we connected again and we start like they supported our projects. And I remember I'm working in Mecca right now, but in that period when we used to submit, submit a proposal for organizations related to refugees activities, and especially related to the refugees' rights, like right of return, taking the children to visit their villages or something. Usually it was rejected. When I contact Mecca, they said, of course, we will support you. And the beginning started there. Barbara came in 1997 with that famous delegation. We remember we yes. had that performance for dancing group. At Bethlehem University. In Bethlehem University. And there were uh, incident happened in that period. And I remember you were freaked out because the members of them, they were attacking Jerusalem in and, and that period. And they were with the delegation and everyone freaked out what will happen, what will happen to the delegation with Barbara. And even we were like, me, I'm focusing on the show, and, and she was busy with the delegation, answering phone calls from United States, people worry about the delegation. And suddenly she told me, you know what? I, we, we need to leave now, but I, will, I want to take the, I want to bring this dancing group to United States. Mm -hmm. And this is 1997. Yes. And for me, what? Us to United States? She's Come on, serious? say something is <laughs> like, uh, can uh, be a, like logical something realistic because I can't go to Jerusalem in that period right. with Jerusalem eight miles you want to take us to America and actually less than two years we were touring United States with the dancing group it was the first time in the history a dancing group from refugee camp carrying the refugees story through dance touring around United States amazing Barbara you've led nearly 20 additional delegations of North Americans to Palestine Israel Iraq and Lebanon often of, with cargoes of food, blankets, and other humanitarian aid supplies and tow. How do you manage to get past the Israeli authorities who must not be very fond of you? Well, you know, I decided early on that I was not going to pretend to be something I'm not. I'd say from around 95, when I would get to the airport, I would just ask for the head of security because before that, from 88 until then, you know, I'd be strip searched and questioned and spent too much time in the airport. So they would get the head of security and I'd give him our newsletter and say who I was and why I was there and that I was delivering these things to the refugee camp. And from then on, they never asked me anything. Uh, of course, taking things to uh, Gaza in two 
2014 was a different story. We had um, flown an enormous cargo of medicine, and I had Dr. Mona, who's our project director in Gaza, she and I had gone and bought a brand-new ambulance in Egypt and found a driver who would drive it into Gaza. So we had this enormous amount of aid. and But we waited at the border for four or five days, along with hundreds of other uh, countries that brought aid into Gaza because people were desperate. There was no medicine. You know, you'd think I'm talking about today, but it has always been like this. Today it's worse because of what just took place in Gaza, but it's always been horrible. So we were there with this huge shipment in the ambulance, but we were the only North Americans who were there. There were so many huge trucks, but they were none of them were from the United States. We were the only people that managed to bring over a large shipment the way we did. Over the years, you've been a, a tireless source of support, you and Mecca, your organization, for the beleaguered uh, children of Palestine, whether in Gaza Strip or in the West Bank. You and Sisyphus must be close friends, at least close colleagues. Well, you know... <laughs> <laughs> the angrier I get, the more work I get to do. <laughs> okay. And I've always been angry. Because <laughs> okay, that was my question. How do you manage? Where do you find the strength and resilience to do all that? So it's anger. The answer is anger. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's, you know, when my son Charlie was born with Down syndrome, I felt like I either had to just just fall apart or I had to do something about it. And over the years, I helped write the, one of the laws on the rights of children with disabilities to go to public school. And it seems that the energy that I get from the anger just makes me a wild woman. And <laughs> it has over Palestine and Iraq. And I'm going to continue to do this work until I can't. For another 77 years, <laughs> oh, yeah. inshallah. <laughs> the past few weeks, we have seen renewed murderous depredations of the IDF against unarmed demonstrators in Gaza, uh, to the tune of, what, 200 dead and thousands of maimed and viciously injured protesters. What are you guys doing, either one of you answer uh, right now, and the urgency of the moment? 118 people, they were killed in Gaza, 13,000, over 13,000 people injured. Among them, still 300 in critical conditions. And in Gaza, from the beginning, actually, from the first week when people, they were killed and shot, and we received calls from hospitals. And by the way, we have our staff members on the ground in Gaza. They are our colleagues. They are working there. They are in touch. So we received this call that we need medicine because Gaza under siege for almost 11 years right now, and they don't have enough stuff. So we respond immediately. There were some funds in our budget, and we immediately we, we couldn't send the medical shipment at that moment because we are not allowed, and not even the other organization. Even we cooperate with UN with and like big organizations 
WHO and this it wasn't possible to send them any medical shipment but the doctors on the ground Israel will, Israel will not, not allow it. it not just only Israelis and Egypt too they uh, Egypt don't allow too. it yeah. mm. so we transferred funds for the hospitals because they were in the local market they were medicine but you need to to be able uh, to buy them. To buy it, yeah, mm. for the hospitals even to buy it. Because what we sent not to governmental hospital, to the uh, non-profit uh, organizations, health organizations. And they bought the medicine. And immediately after that, in the beginning of Ramadan, because we know that right now uh, it's almost 50, uh, 49% of the people in Gaza unemployed and no income and for the third month the people they are employed for the third month they didn't receive the salaries until now so the people they have nothing even one of our colleagues she described she was very sad even after the massacre the first day of ramadan usually this is the day when the people they go out to try to buy food you know the people they need to wake up early morning to eat and prepare but she can she told me and she was in tears actually people they love the life but you look at them they don't have as usual they have big bags full of food, fruits, cheese, you know, mm. for Ramadan and all this kind. People, they have a little bit because you can see that the, the economic situation is very bad. So what we did, we transferred already uh, immediately for that, for in the beginning of Ramadan, $40,000 to be able to support 1,000 family and all over Gaza for the people in need and families. And we're still collecting funds to send medical shipments in the future and to send uh, uh, to support families in need and especially in this, this month of Ramadan. People going through hard time. Me personally, when I say people like we are in solidarity, we need to be in solidarity with these people. Our duty is to support. And for me, I know what it means that I grew up as a refugee in a refugee camp and Gaza, it's almost 1,300,000. They are refugees. The majority, they are refugees. And in Gaza, actually, the majority, they are children. 43% of the people living in Gaza, they are children below 15 years old. Mm. More than half of them, they are below 18 years old. Mm. So in general, for us, Gaza is a big jail, open prison. And most of the prisoners, they are children. And people right now, they are in need. Until now, there are calls from hospitals. There are calls to support the families. People, the injured people, they can't leave the Gaza. And they can't go to get the right medicine. They don't have, imagine hospitals and the clinics without electricity. Three hours to four hours a day, the electricity. The water is polluted. So it's really very hard. We now do emergency programs like support the people like to get food, healthy food if it's possible, and to prepare for the coming medical shipments. In addition to that, we have the rest of our project. We were build water Why purification system. Why don't you talk system. a little bit about the Maya project? Maya project, it's one of the main projects. Actually, I remember this when I came to Mecca and... Um, in Gaza, I, uh, as according to uh, Amnesty International and uh, United Nations, 95% of the water in Gaza is polluted. 12% among the young deaths in Gaza, they are related to diarrhea. Oh. And diarrhea related to the water. The water is polluted in Gaza. Mm. And that... that uh, the water facilities were bombed by the Israelis. Even before uh, it was bombed. Mm. In addition to that, they bombed in 2008, mm. 2009, 2012, and 2014. But in addition to that, 
additional to that, and before that, the water is polluted. Part of the Israeli had the way how they punish the Palestinians. I call it collective punishment for yes. Palestinians. Mm. They use the electricity, they use the water as part of the, the, the collective punishment against the Palestinians. Actually, Mecca in 2007, usually, and this is what I love about Mecca, not just because I'm working here, even when I used to love about Mecca when I was in the camp and mm. receiving mm. support from Mecca. Usually they ask us, what you need from us? We are not used to this privilege, to be honest with you, because mm. sometimes the funders, they try to impose on you what you should do. Mm. Because some funders, they have their own agenda. Right. So Dr. Mona in Gaza, our project director, she reached out to the one of the schools in the bridge refugee camp, and she asked the children, what do you want from us as Mecca? And imagine, I mean, Dr. Mona, she thought, you know, video games, computers, <laughs> this is what children. Right. And it was shocking for Dr. Mona and Barbara later that the children, they retained back. They had workshops. By the way, in that period, there were children parliaments mm. in Gaza Strip in schools. Mm. They had a workshop and they came back to Dr. Mona and they told her, can we have a clean glass of water when we come to school? Because they don't trust to drink the water in their school. Hmm. They are afraid. They've been robbed and of a childhood. You know, yes. If they're There's thinking no like childhood. adults. Hmm. Yeah, I can say that. Hmm. Palestinian children without childhood. This hmm. is the, 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 the tragedy, I can say it. But they try. And we try as much as we can. We want the children at least to taste the childhood. To experience a little bit. Mm. where you can feel safe. After that, Dr. Mona and Barbara, they were looking in Gaza, they find like local company where they build water purification and desalinization system. And the first project, it was started in that school bridge. And since then until now, we are close to 75 schools and kindergartens in Gaza Strip, they can access clean, of water, uh, clean water. Wow. And imagine, Usually even maybe you do it or the, the listeners, they do it. Usually you fill your bottle in your home and when you go out, you fill the water, you take your, the water from home. In Gaza, no. In Gaza, they take the bottles empty from their homes to school. When they finish the school, they fill it to bring it back, clean water mm -hmm. to their brothers and sisters. And this is one of the amazing projects. And for me personally, I love this project. I know Barbara too. This is why we call it Maya project. And Maya, for yeah. me, because Water. I feel mm. I love the fact we are doing this project because I used to shower one time a week. I feel very privileged here as a refugee being in the United States because I used to shower one time a week. And when I was living in the refugee camp, my mom, she used to carry the water on her head and walk miles to bring us the water to mm -hmm. drink. And just if we are lucky, we can shower one time a week. So every morning when I have a shower here, I still enjoy this privilege. And imagine the people living in this situation still in 2018. Yeah. Barbara, as mm -hmm. had just mentioned funders, who helps support Mecca so they can support these kids? Well, you know, most of our funders are individual people. And our supporters are, you know, it was very hard when we, Howard and I started this organization. Nobody would give us any money. And here in Berkeley, it was really tough. People were vicious to us. A lot of people were. Uh, nobody was talking about the rights of Palestinians. And 
they wanted us to, a lot of people came to us and said, you have to raise money for both children, Israeli oh. Jews <laughs> and the Palestinians. And I just went crazy. I said, "My, listen, I grew up. All we did was give money to Israel. We're not doing that. We're an organization that works with Palestinian children, period. It changed a little during Iraq because we did a lot of work in Iraq and around Iraq during that horrific, senseless, lying war. It was unbelievable. It was so frustrating. I hated that. That was one of my most hated periods. But there are individual people. Some people have a lot of money, and we've beg them for it. So it's really, we got we have gotten money for some foundations, but not many. Most foundations didn't, still don't give money for Palestine. So it's very difficult raising money, but um, very vicious. And um, we have managed to raise the money for Palestine. And, you know, a whole lot of those people that I just talked about I see them today. I used to see them at big demonstrations with anti-Palestinian signs and signs that said horrible things about Mecca. And now I see them all. They're all for Palestine. You know, the world has changed and things have changed. And one of the things that has really changed has been people opening up and allowing themselves to see the honesty when of what we talked about all these years. And it's really great to see so many people supporting this issue. I never thought I'd see it. I'm really happy to see it. Yeah, Yeah, in addition to that, I will add, like, uh, as Barbara said, most of our funders, they are individuals, actually. And honestly, yeah, we do great work on the ground. This is how we hear from the people in in, in the ground. I mean, in Gaza and West Bank and uh, and Lebanon and Iraq before. But to be honest, still the challenge is huge. The needs in the ground, it's unbelievable. And as much sometimes you feel you accomplish something when you build a water system or when you support a kindergarten or you support a project for girls or you support women project, still when you look for other needs, it's uh, it's uh, huge there in the ground because the people they are really really in needs and still it's a huge challenge for us to respond to this and there are a lot and this is why we in Mecca we try to continue try to respond as when there is emergency and continue do the the regular programs we do with and for example right now we spoke about water the electricity project. And the electricity project, it's in Gaza, imagine your life, you have the electricity just for four hours. And they, you don't have it like in certain time during the day. It's shift sometime in the evening, sometime in the middle of the night. And people, they need to wake up to charge their phones, to cook whatever they want to do because the electricity. And they were a group of uh, young people, engineers, like graduate from, they came with this initiative. And they they thought like, okay, we can store the, the electricity, the power for like eight hours to 10 hours. In some cases, 12 hours, where they, the people, they will be able to have lights in their houses during the night. 
And one of the things, like we work with children, that children they are traumatized from the the war, from the siege, from of the. Their, their, in addition to that, some families and many families actually, I can say that they don't have electricity in their house. They are not able. The only electricity they get it for four hours. So the, they developed this system. We call it Gaza Lights, <laughs> the project. And these were supported now. And we have over 600 families right now. They can have lights, simple lights. They can have lights in the bedroom, in the living room. Children, they can study for their exams, for their schools. And when you go to the bathroom, you need to have a light. Yeah. At the same time, they can charge phones to be in touch if you need anything mm -hmm. and to have a fan because in summer it gets very 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 hot yeah. this is the only thing and this is people people i call them they are really resilient they are very creative yes. and by the way they lead us mm -hmm. they support you know, they lead our work because the way how they take their our initiative they inf influence us and motivate us. And by the way, we are standing. We are in solidarity with the people. We don't lead. We support whatever they think it's important to survive in Gaza Strip or in everywhere. Barbara, Donald Trump and his regime have brought unprecedented, blatant support to the cause of a continued Israeli expansionism. How does the extreme situation we're in now, where every last fig leaf has been dropped from U.S. policy towards Israel. How does that affect the prospect of a two-state solution? I don't think there's ever been a chance for a two-state solution. I think that it was talked about as a way of getting the conversation going and getting the peoples together. But in reality, it's really unreal to think about two states. It is one state. It's one land. It's one apartheid state. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think that today, if you ask Palestinians or the ones that I know, they would say that um, we don't think we'll have two states, but we want to have the same rights. Simple. Uh, exactly. They just want to have the same rights as the Jewish people have in Israel. That's all. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's just ridiculous to be thinking about chopping it up more than they have. And the fact is that hundreds of thousands of Israeli Israelis have moved into Palestine and have set up settlements. There's about 600,000, I believe, uh, Jewish people living in settlements up on a hill surrounding the Palestinian families in their little towns. So it already is one state, and I think that it will only be it will only be justice. There will only be justice when it's recognized that this is the way it has to be. And I I thought it would be happening. You know, I always thought, oh, it'll happen soon. You know, they had all these peace conferences. But now I just listen to that talk and blah, 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 blah. And I realize how meaningless it is. Well, Israel and its supporters in this country are betting, have been betting that Palestine can be subdued the same way the Europeans managed to subdue uh, native peoples in this country. And therefore, there's no reason for compromise, to compromise their dream of a Jewish uh, hegemony in the Near East. On their side, after all, they seem to have all the money in the world, all the weaponry, the technology, and all the Western media, and a godlike superiority complex. What could go wrong with this picture? I mean, <laughs> because the Palestinians are unlike any people I've ever met. 
Um, and it's not just the Palestinians. It's everybody over there in the Middle East. But the one thing that Palestinians have is this desire. This It's just an unbelievable desire and expectation that they will get their rights. And they're not going anywhere. They're going to stay there. And they... I always hear this one word wherever I go, whenever, how many years I've been going, 30 years, the word samud Samud, is always being used. And resistance, resilience, yeah, steadfastness. And that's who they are. From little kids to old people, they have no intention of leaving. And as you saw this last week, running up that hill, running to that fence and being shot down, they're not going anywhere. They're going to fight for their rights until they get them or till they die. Their old joke is that Israel is an irresistible force bearing down on an unmovable object. Yes. <laughs> Did you make a record like that? Yeah. <laughs> so Sheldon Adelson, for three consecutive presidential campaigns, backed candidates willing to do his bidding. It was Gingrich and more recently Trump, unfortunately, uh, he succeeded. Now he's finally gotten what he paid for, a U.S. embassy in Jerusalem, an increased uh, belligerence towards Iran, and zero daylight anymore between the U.S. and Israel. None whatsoever. As an activist who's neck deep in this struggle... Do you have hope that younger Jews in this country may be starting to turn away from from Israel? I think you can see by all of these organizations that are now existing that there's a whole lot of young anti-Zionist Jewish kids, young people and old people, who are on the side of justice. And I, I think, as I've said, it has changed. Uh, it has changed enormously, and I've met a lot of them, and they're wonderful kids. And I believe that I may not live to see it, but I do believe that. So you think that all this money, this tsunami of Zionist money, will stop having its effect at some point, or you know, it will have less effect? You never know what's going to happen in mm. the Middle East. That's the one thing I do know. Mm. People are going to survive. And things change overnight. Overnight, they hate one country. You know, you've just seen and what's BDS, happened. BDS has made such a huge, huge change. BDS is making a change. And all the Sheldon Adelsons in the world. Can't change that. Can't change that. But you know what? you got to look at this country that we live in. Because things need to change here. We're in a very dark depressing, dangerous period. And I really, I just can't believe that I would live to see the day when a jerk like Donald Trump would get elected in this country to be our president. He is disgusting. He's ill. Two of Mecca's stalwart supporters, Ali Abu Nima and Alice Walker, will be part of the 30-year celebration event what will be their involvement on that occasion? What other highlights of the grand celebration can you share with us before the event? Yeah, actually, uh, first of all, we are celebrating with the Palestinian, with the people. They are, they kept Mecca work and leads Mecca work. I can't say the people they are in the ground, the people with their sumud Barbara she used. 
they keep like uh, keep us working. And at the same time, uh, we want to honor Barbara. And for the 30 years, the accomplishment, we accomplished, I can say, good work in the 30 years. We have people that are coming to join us, and Alex Walker, Ali Abnama, Angela Davis, and Hali Nir, and Melanie Dumour, and many others, but they will be there where we were just to continue. And it's a fundraising for um, uh, Mecca, the, even to continue the work we do it, like the, what we spoke about our projects in Gaza. And uh, this is something where that we are committed as Mecca and Middle Eastern Alliance to continue what Barbara started 30 years ago and to expand our work, to reach more for the people in needs, to the marginalized communities. And this is one of the events. We do it every actually five years. <laughs> and now we are 30 years. I, I, I joined in... Uh, and they're I'm afraid not... I won't be here for no, no, many no, more of me, these. No, no, no. way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and this is something where we try, like, with our supporters and the people that are in solidarity with Palestine to renew, I call it, and refresh our commitment for not just Palestine, for Syrian refugees, for everyone in need, because we are not just working in Palestine. And I don't know whether you know this, but um, the city council last night passed a resolution making June 4th Barbara Lubin Day in the city of Berkeley. And wow. I expect everyone who sees me on the street to bow. And <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. That's uh, very much... Uh, well deserved. I've been in, in uh, Berkeley for 20 years now, and the first day I, I reached here, I became aware of, of Barbara Lubin, this <laughs> this this uh, force of nature. Barbara Lubin, I think we're, it was at the demonstration or something, one of those things. Yeah. And there you were, sitting on the asphalt with a few <laughs> other people and protesting. And uh, I think it's high time. It's, it's at least 20 years late as far as I'm concerned, this recognition. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I want to thank both of you, Ziad and Barbara, for coming and sharing some memories with us and, and some of your work. Anything we didn't mention that you'd like to add before we close? It's been 30 years, and I am going to be stepping down as executive director. I'm going to continue to work there, but more as a... Um, an assistant, you know, I'm going to raise money, call people, do the work, but not have the responsibility of, of being the head of the organization. Mm. In fact, you know, I haven't been there for eight months. I was very ill, and so was my son Charlie. And we're well now, but I'm ready to not be doing that. So yeah. how's Charlie? He's getting to be okay. You know, he was very weak. And at one point, Howard and I thought that he wasn't going to make it. Oh, my God. But he's okay. Alhamdulillah. Yeah. It was amazing that the two of us had the same disease at the same, at the time. same time for eight months. It was really brutal. But we got well. Thank God. Actually, in, in the office, sometimes we joke uh, when she speaks, I want to go home, I want. <laughs> and I say all the time, there is no transition areas from the office to the grave. That's it. <laughs> 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 I will say like uh, Barbara and her history and I experienced with her when I was in Palestine and 
uh, working there in our refugee camp. And I use even some time to have her vacation, what we call it, just she comes to stay with us, reading her books, go to the families, with not just doing the work and to be around. She became known in the camp and known in our community and people all the time looking for her and they would like to meet with her. And I can say in Mecca, she created a spirit where we are. I am like when I speak about Mecca, I speak about all my colleagues, the people in the ground in Palestine and Gaza Strip. We have three staff members, Dr. Mona and Amal and Wafa. In West Bank, we have my colleague and she's part of the leadership in Mecca, Josie Shields, Stromesness. And uh, by the way, she's a mom now for a new baby. Yes, we have a new baby. And we have our team here, which they are amazing team. We have uh, Debra Agar, we have uh, Benny Rosenwasser, we have Nancy, we have Sue, we have Nawal, we have Just, And all this, this is the Mecca, created the spirit we work where we work as a team. And to be honest, it's a huge legacy. What Barbara did, it's a huge responsibility. It's not easy to to take responsibility for that. So all of us as a team will continue and protect this organization and keep the spirit there alive. Excellent. Well, thank you again, Barbara Lubin. Thank you. Zayed Abbas. Thank you. Thank you. Barbara Lubin is the founder and executive director of Middle East Children's Alliance. Ziad Abbas is Mecca's program manager for cross-cultural programs. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Palestinians living in the occupied West Bank face extreme danger and hardship just to live their daily lives. It took Palestinian award-winning documentary filmmaker Khaled Jarrar four years to finish his documentary film Infiltrators. The film documents the crossing of Palestinians over Israel's 20-foot apartheid wall. Palestinians who cross in search of work, a short visit with loved ones, or medical treatment they cannot receive in the West Bank, risk arrest, or worse. I asked Khaled about his motivation for making the film and why it took him so long to finish it. My last screening in Ramallah, my son Muhammad, he's nine years old. He was with me and with Adam. Adam, he's four and a half years old. So they were with me in the screening and they watched the film and uh, there was a lot of question. 
and none of the audience they asked this question. So my son he asked me, Baba, why you was insist to make this film and it took you this time to keep shooting? What inspired you? And actually, what happened that in 2008, it was my first time I I make this experience from this tunnel because I used to make photography, documentation, journalistic photos at the checkpoints where the people trying to cross to the checkpoints to go to Jerusalem. And by chance, I hear that taxi drivers saying uh, loudly, Jerusalem passed by for, so for the people who couldn't enter Jerusalem. So I, well, I went to the taxi and I tried to go in the taxi and the taxi driver, he didn't allow me because I have a camera and there was seven uh, women in the taxi who was going to Jerusalem, crossing by the wall. And I was trying to convince them that I will not take photos for them. I just want to go to Jerusalem like them. You can steal this chance from me to be in Jerusalem. I didn't never been there since long, long time. So please let me go with you. So I went with them and we go to this tunnel. It's underground, full of sewage water. So when I was inside the tunnel, I start making photos inside the tunnel because it was really awful to be in this sewage tunnel uh, with naked feet. And it's dark and it's very, it's horrible. It, I, I was afraid and I have a catastrophic for small area. So I was a little bit afraid and I was trying to go beyond my fear using my camera. So my camera really gave me the power to continue this journey walking this tunnel. And that time after I, I crossed the tunnel, we go inside, we go outside, we go to Jerusalem. Hmm. When I come back to my studio... I saw my photos that there was a very strong photos, so I decided to make a photography exhibition that happened in 2008. And I really been very inspired and very touched by the strength of these people, the women and the girls who was crossing this tunnel. And I went back again, I met some people there, I asked them about the tunnel, they told me their stories. I brought a camera, video camera another time. And I was waiting because this tunnel, actually, it's normally being closed by the Israeli. So this is an underground tunnel. And yes. in one of the scenes, you actually show a father carrying yes, a newborn. Yes. It's the same tunnel. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So this is the footages that you saw from that time, from mm. 2008, because I went there with the camera videos to make it more visible for the tunnel because the, the photography was very strong, nicely done. But the video, it will show the atmosphere, the experience to be in this tunnel. One thing that sets your documentary film, Infiltrators, apart from other documentaries I have seen is that you don't use any narration, no commentary. And some of your scenes, especially in the beginning and the ones that have been shot at night, are grainy, some out of focus. And yeah. it conveys a sense of urgency and danger. For example, your opening shot, when I was watching it, I felt like you are filming a prison break. Yes. Let's hear some sound from your opening scene where you show a group of young men in the dark trying to cross a field to reach the apartheid wall.
this part actually it it start to say a very strong statement that the whole security theory that Israeli obtain is is fake. There is nothing behind the wall is security. This wall is just to steal lands and to control people and to steal the sources of water and the nature. By this scene, I prove that the Palestinian, they will cross the wall, whatever it happened, and the wall will not stop them to cross to the other side of the wall because in the other side, there is their families, it's their work, it's their mosque, it's their church, it's their life, it's their hospitals, schools. So it's their daily life. For me, it's more about daily life of the people. And when, when somebody wants to go and to meet his mother or her mom, or when, when people want to go to hospital, nothing will stop them. Because there was one, one girl, I couldn't actually add her story in the film, she go to the hospital for cancer and the Israeli, they refused to give her permission to go to hospital because she has a security file, as they said, but she is dying almost. And it was really hard for me to put her story. And as I said, like, I didn't use narration. I didn't uh, use driven interviews because I want to give the people the voice. I want to reach the voice for the people because I was there. I know exactly how these people they think and what they are doing and what they want to reach, what, why they are doing that. So that was their voice was talking, their, their image, their voice. So I, was, I tried to present and to show their voice with their action, not with their talks. Because most of the time, talks will add nothing. And uh, when you interview somebody, of course, they will try to choose their words to talk and to tell. But when, when this camera is one of them, when this camera became one of them, they will do their life as there's no camera. So this, is, this was my point. Hmm. Since you're a visual artist, you're a photographer, you do sculpture stylistically, how much of this film was informed by your discipline as an artist, as a visual artist. The camera was moving at times, many times. Yes. They were, yes. It was moving yeah. very slow. You yes. had several still shots uh, yes. in the film, zooming on a hand, zooming on yes. a shoulder. It was almost all. Actually, this is a very important point because this show how my way of shooting developed. Because in the beginning, it was more spontaneous. And in some of the footages, like the shooting with the girl, she was in the taxi talking to the smugglers and they, she climbed the wall. You see that shot has a different style because that time it, I was developed, this was new footages. And the footages from the beginning and the footages from the end with the guy who was kissing his mom's hands and walking in the, in the forest. So this shows how my way of shooting developed. And I, I really almo- I was almost lo- losing the sense of how spontaneous I was in the beginning. Mm. That's why I think that's what gave the speciality of my footages. And I really like if I can do another time, make a shooting in the same way that I was doing that. Because that way, it gave me to be like an amateur photographer with, with these people. Because I was more interested in the whole action of the crossing. So the, the crossing really inspired me. So I, was not, I didn't care so much if the shooting was clear or stable. 
whatever, because th this was part of them. I was doing this with them. I was climbing with them. I was living with them. And sometimes I just leave the camera without looking because I don't want to fright them. Because when you just show the camera on their face, this will make them frightened. This will, this will destroy all the trust that I was working on. I work a lot to make trust between me and these people. And these people, they trust me that I will not show their faces. I will not show their IDs, their numbers, things that show who they are. But you did show that girl's face. This girl, you know that it's developed by style. And this girl, she agreed to show her face. That boy, he agreed. And that man, they agreed. The people who really agree to show their faces and there was need to show their faces, I, I just did it. Because when I show the face of this girl, I show that this is different style, different footages, something more stable and something more, more like fiction, you can say. But it's reality. But she's my friend. And I go with her because she's my friend and she knows who I am and I know who, who she is and she really wants to be in the film. So Khalid, can you share her story with us? Also, there is another scene in which a young boy... Um, yeah. He is pushing through a hole, loaves of bread, to, someone, bread. to yeah. someone else is, on the other yeah. side that we do not see. Yeah, for the cake, the bread, this bread is called the cake of Jerusalem. This is the symbol of Jerusalem. This is very important for people to know. And Palestinians, they, they knew it because this is the bread of Jerusalem. They called it cake of Jerusalem. And this is the, something very special from Jerusalem. It's like the bread with the, with the sesame. The wall comes in the middle of the, the highway. It is on the island. So they build the wall on the highway, and they make the highway for the Palestinian and for the Israeli. This side for the Palestinian, there was their bakery where they make the cake, the bread. And their, their market is behind the wall. So when they make the wall, the places inside is more economically developed. So they couldn't move their bakery inside. So they keep their place. They make the bread here. And they need to send the bread to the other side to sell it inside Jerusalem. And the Israeli army don't let them enter the bread from the checkpoint. And that's why he was smuggling the bread. And this guy, his name is, this boy, his name is Hassan. Mm -hmm. He smuggled 1,000 bread that time. And he usually do this every Friday. Does he ever and get the, caught? Uh, when I shoot with him, he never been caught. When the soldiers came, he just ran. They would not catch him. What about that girl? Because she has a very, very interesting story as well. That girl, she's my friend. And once on her first book, Cursed Occupation. And I talked to her and chat. And I said, hi, Jamana, how are you? What's happened to you? What the occupation did for you? She said, I want to go to Haifa to sing with... There is one singer, she's from, from Haifa, and they have a concert. So she wants to go to sing with her. She's a singer. And they, she applied for a permission, and the Israeli, they refused to give her a permission. And I said, it's easy. Why you make it, you make it so complicated? You, do you want to go really to Jerusalem? She said, yes. I said, okay, I called somebody, and I will come back to you. I called a friend of mine, his smuggler, and I told him there's one girl. He said, if she can climb the wall, I said, yes, she's a strong girl, she can do it. He said, yeah, there is one place where we can cross her. And I called her back. I said, there's two smugglers, they can help you to cross. You need to pay like 150 shekel. She said, okay, yes, I will do it. I told her, Jaman, can I ask you something? She said, yes. I said, 
you know that I'm doing a film about people going to Jerusalem and I would like to shoot with you if this is okay. She said, I never mind, you know, come and just bring your camera. And I just go with her and I just, I introduce her to the smugglers and I said, no, I, I will not talk with you, just do whatever you want. And she started making the deal with them, they smuggle her and, and she in turn was okay for her. So who are these people, these smugglers? These smugglers, what I call them smugglers, they are taxi drivers that who used to work from Ramallah to Jerusalem, Bethlehem to Jerusalem, Abudis to Jerusalem, Hebrew to Jerusalem. So this is their service line. But when the Israeli block the wall around Jerusalem at a checkpoint, so they couldn't do their job anymore. So they kept their job, but being more uh, like risky to go and smuggle people crossing on the wall. So this is the same people who was doing the taxi drive to Jerusalem. And because they need another people inside, there's a people like Palestinian, Israeli, Jewish, who has an Israeli IDs living inside Jerusalem. They work together. So for them, all of them, it's more about business, making money. And so it's a good business for Palestinian and for the Israeli to smuggle people. So how much do they charge? Some of them, they charge like 50 shekels, which is like 13 US dollar or uh, 100 shekel, 150. It depends on the way because some people, they smuggle on the wall, just 50 shekel. But there is some people who smuggle with Israeli settlers, Israeli Jewish guy who has an Israeli car with his looks like religious. So he can go from the checkpoint direct. So this costs 300 shekel. It's kind of like VIP smuggling. Khaled Jarrar is a Palestinian visual artist and director of the award-winning film Infiltrators. To learn more about Khaled Jarrar's work, please visit vomina.org. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.